Welcome to the UN Podcast. UN Projects focuses on artists, writers, artist-run initiatives and independent projects. It publishes essays, artists' work and reviews in print and online. UN Projects also presents exhibitions, talks and other one-off contemporary art-related events. This is the first in a series of long-form interviews which really dig into what an artist does and perhaps why they do it. You can find images to accompany these podcasts at unprojects.org.au. This podcast is available to stream on SoundCloud and through iTunes. In this episode, we speak to Stephen Rahl, a Melbourne-based artist whose interdisciplinary practice delves into both cultural semiotics in the Australian context and post-colonial narratives as space, and into the blurring lines in what is not only seen as culture per se, but in what has been relegated to the non-cultural, and how that kind of culture can pervade our interactions with the environment around us. Born in Geelong, the artist has undertaken residencies at the Bunjalaka Redevelopment Project at Melbourne Museum, the Institute of Koori Education at Deakin University and Centre of Contemporary Photography with Horsham Regional Art Gallery and Australian Grains Gene Bank for Climart in 2015. He has exhibited work at Footscray Community Arts Centre, Coonahan Gallery, the NGV, Mildura Art Centre, Antonio Art Gallery in Manila, to name but a few, and his work is held in the NGV, City of Melbourne and Horsham Regional Art Gallery collections. He has also studied and worked at, in social work and photographic practice and is currently undertaking his Master of Contemporary Art at the Victorian College of the Arts. My name is Sarah and I'll be taking you through the next hour with Stephen, speaking about capitalism, colonialism, photography, topography, the gestural commodification and more. Here, Stephen tells us about his practice. It's an interesting question to consider one's practice. I think, for me at least, it's an ongoing uh, exercise in itself is to consider what my practice encompasses, uh, maybe you know where its, its edges are, which in, in terms of thinking about what it encompasses, it has uh, grown over the years where, I guess much like other artists, where the art making or the idea of practice becomes somewhat formalised, maybe that's through... Um, some sort of study where it's like, oh, yeah, this is what I do or what I feel I should be doing. And through being in that space, it's somewhat fulfilling that there's an open-endedness as to... Where it can go. Yeah, and what might constitute that. But I'll, I'll try not to be too facetious. So I'm writing a bit lately. So that's, you know, another form of exploring ideas and I guess expressing ideas and working through ideas and text in itself is obviously a medium and the word text is also used as an overarching idea for the various materialities that we might use in exploring and expressing ideas which as a part or as a part from the the written word historically I've worked with photo media for quite a, a long time and it has um, expanded to not have with regards to photo media it being the primary materiality of a work so I guess I'm maybe thinking about instances where uh, it's used to remediate something else so with respect to that my practice involves the performative I guess the gestural 
How do you think it translates from that photographic medium to the performative or gestural aspects of art making? It happens, that translation can happen just through, you know, the subjective decisions you make, I guess, at its basis. To think of the performative, it sort of comes down to the corporal, what the body, how I decide what my body in space does. And there are subjective decisions around whether it's uh, consciously using the body to perform gestures for the video, where in thinking of the audience, the audience is only myself at the gestural stage of that and all other audience comes after it becomes video. So I think there's yeah innumerable ways of how that might translate. And it's also sort of mindful of, I'm quite interested and mindful of how the screen as an object and as a remediated performance is presented in the exhibition space what I guess it imbues the space with as an object as well. The, uh, the, idea is, the, the idea of the video is a bit weird that it's sort of, it's there, it's not, it's showing somewhere else, but you're not in that somewhere else. Screens are very material, but what's sort of being portrayed through the screen is quite immaterial. So the consideration of how that screen sits in the exhibition space is yeah, something I think about a lot, I guess, which extends to, yeah, the idea of installation and and other objects that might form part of an exhibition that I construct in some way. Do you think that you focus on any themes in particular in your practice? Yeah, well, I guess just in terms of the manifestation of, of artwork, there's, you know, the, the setting, the circumstance, so time, materiality uh, and narrative is part of that. Thematically, I look at ideas of cultural representation, which um, on a personal level is connected to my Tangarong ancestry. And I guess the idea of Aboriginal art as a thing is commonly expressed. That's like it's a, it's a container. To categorise something suggests it's a, a container with, in some ways, impervious sort of edges or, or, or boundaries. So I'm curious about the idea of that being a container and with the idea of a, a space that I'm operating in, it's at those edges or in a non-linear way, some sort of liminal place. I think in your practice as well, you also look a lot at topography in the ways that urban, urban design influences how we live. Uh-huh, yeah. Do you want to tell me a little bit about how you work with topography or how you work with the spaces that we inhabit? Yeah. I guess getting back to the body, we're existing day by day, moving through space somewhat dictated by our responsibilities and our either self-chosen or, for lack of a better term, dictated roles that, that we're given. So, yeah, I consider that as the body in space and predominantly living in urbanised areas myself compared to non-urbanised or rural or I guess the idea of a remote area. They're, yeah, complex spaces if only for the amount of bodies that inhabit those spaces and the exchanges between us all, both, I guess, you know, quite obvious ones like to communicate verbally or immaterial exchanges which uh, is to think of the idea of exchange of capital and and money within the capitalist system, yeah, that's a massive layer to that uh, topography. The way that we put symbols on that topography as well and how they interact with each other. Yeah, how 
that capitalist layer as part of the topography sort of presents itself to make it, you know, self-perpetuate, I guess, and, and to have us as, as bodies take part in that. And, you know, I think its ultimate goal is is to um, have us do that as unconsciously as, as possible. How do you think it self-perpetuates? The aims or, or goals of that system is to get so embedded in both our culture in a hegemonistic or monocultural sense and even like subcultures of course you know they're commodified quite readily as soon as they become apparent um that they uh become a a part of us as as groups within cultures and subcultures but also as part of the self on that um visceral neural level where we're you know otherwise brainwashed to participate within that system out of the fear of um not being what that system dictates you should be i guess due to its dominance we're otherwise sort of to generalize maybe left without the opportunity to find out who we are you know what the self is as the individual and um it's more than happy to to take over and sort of di- dictate what happens in terms of our exchanges in, in many different ways. Do you think it also makes people feel like they are empowered when really they're just part of the larger system that they're cooperating in? I'm thinking of individualism now uh-huh. and how that affects how we see ourselves in community and capitalism as a structure and, and as a machine. How do you think that the individual can function in that? Do you think there is such a thing? I think there is when when we have some sense of agency and you know I think that that idea that feeling or sense of agency we all experience in different ways and even um throughout you know all sorts of parts of society where even in a dissenting manner that there's actions that people undertake that consciously or otherwise is um, dissenting against that system. And I, I guess that could extend to, you know, associated systems of authority. How do you think that you respond to it in your practice and how do you think you stand up to it? Or how would you like to stand up to it? Yeah, well, you know, it's like what's, what the idea of standing up to, to capitalism, what, what does that mean? Is it through some form of dissent? Is it just deciding not to buy everyone Christmas presents? Is that just a sort of a valid form of standing up against capitalism as it might be with the materials, objects and gestures that you might employ within an artistic practice? In my mind, capitalism is really strongly linked to colonialism as well. Mm. And I see those effects, you know. Yeah, I think they're inextricably linked, capitalism and colonialism and ideas of imperialism, that its expansion throughout the world and the colonial project was aided, was, yeah, is to aid, I guess, imperialist power. And to think about, maybe in a, in a simple sense, a neo-colonialist sort of state that with both original inhabitants of a, of a space as sovereign owners and the newly arrived people, whether they explicitly as part of that colonial project or uh, are ancestors of that, have become part of that capitalist layer that otherwise governs that space. And that's, you know, one, one perspective, the idea of governing a space. I guess that's more 
so linked to like notions of authority, just that the space that's demarcated through ownership, through dispossession. Unpodcast. Private property is also a thing that came about, well, with colonialism, basically. Yeah, yeah. Like it came around with farming and then the imposition of that kind of farming or like property ownership and demarcation of space mm. and that imposition of that space onto another country or another another space that isn't where it originally came from. But That's I was thinking right, yeah. about that with your work that you did for Biennial Lab Gesture. 70 Degrees East, New Day Rising. Do you want to tell me a little bit about that? Gesture, 70 Degrees East, New Day Rising was looking at um, the to- topography of the site where the Queen Vic Victoria Market is currently situ- situated and I guess to think about you know a space having a narrative as well that you can inhabit that space in in the present so to speak and see that narrative being played out in front of you and even take part in that narrative and co-author that narrative as well to then in thinking of a historical sense the the narrative prior to that present depends on who you are, but you're maybe not involved in that. And you think about, well, who, who was involved in, in the narrative of, of that space prior to the present that we're talking about? And obviously, much like the other dominating narratives of around Melbourne, it's you know largely of its post-invasion narrative where upon some research, and it's you know sort of semi-widely understood that it was a cemetery as well, and in some ways maybe still is, when, when would it cease being a cemetery? I guess, you know, when the Melbourne City Council or whoever or however they were known at some point say it has ceased operations. And that's this interesting, like, side story to that, that the council at some point did, I guess, um, decommission that space as a cemetery, but it actually, the interment of bodies still continued. Such was the way of the time. But... To think of that period, there's, an, I guess, an overlap in its usage and um, in a maybe non-functional or physical sense, but maybe in a more spiritual sense, there's, you know, that overlap via layers of its use and relationship to by the traditional owners of that area, pre-European arrival and, yeah, post-arrival as well. So much of the dominating narratives speak about taking this space is an example of it being you know Wurundjeri land that it's uh, like a past narrative that relationship was a thing of the past and that it has has ceased which of course it hasn't I guess that um, idea of still having a presence and being really fortunate to consider the narratives of that space as an artist and have that opportunity you know supported to me by the various frameworks and ironically the the council <laughs> that were you know the ones in probably demarking that space from their perspective from Wurundjeri use to cemetery use. Um, Can you give people a little hmm. bit of a visual description of the work? So the work made as part of the Public Art Melbourne Biennial Lab is a for one a physical intervention into the existing architecture of that space which for the most part consists of um, long rows of sheds and the most southern still operating shed of the market is m shed and it abuts the massive car park the work is situated within m shed and within an area that as i had observed 
the space and as it still functions that it's predominantly a non-commercial space and used as a public sort of thoroughfare and a space where people would stop and relax or, or, or eat their lunch. Otherwise it's like an open shed with an open face on the north and a semi-open face on the south and with the I guess the visual language of that space there's well a lot it's almost endless like where does the visual quality of the space sort of finish particularly when it's always in flux as well it never changes but some of the you know relatively more permanent visual language of that space being the yellow I guess pedestrian crossing markings parallel lines they run to the space and they had stopped and then they would run from that space and I guess just in, in terms of thinking of the visual language that in this instance is has it has a, a functional purpose for one these markings just in relation to the rest of the space that they're otherwise parallel to what we might think of the edges of that space which sit on a north south east west axis give or take nine degrees so i extended those uh, markings into the space and also i guess the idea of repeated lines onto the vertical planes of that space as well and above the ground plane so around where the trusses are in that space. On the vertical plane, it consisted of um, dye bond, which is an aluminium composite sort of panelling used in commercial fit-outs, commonly on, on the front of like fancy, well, I should say corporate businesses like banks and, and such, and laminated sort of plywood. And I also used dye bond in in that roof space amongst the trusses, which um, was a mirrored dye bond, also set out in parallel lines. And just finishing the detailing of the physicality of, of that work, the, um, the north-facing corrugated iron was replaced with the translucent corrugated material and a rubbish bin was taken out. And I guess the, the southern wall was just sort of blacked out in a way rather than showing the eye beams of the structure it was sort of like it became a negative space which was interesting at the time and still a bit now the use of material to make a negative space the addition of something but yeah the work is how i see it is activated in two ways firstly by and in thinking again about that state of flux and change and also in, in some ways about the loop that our days with day and night sort of a, a looping function but you know just as the sun itself changes per the second it's, it's it's never the same and how that light from the sun falls on that space itself is dependent on other factors such as you know the weather and objects such as clouds i guess between the space and and the light source and um the sun as it passed through the translucent material which is then interspersed by or broken up by the parallel lines in the roof space would then fall as light on the ground plane leaving the negative space of the of the shadow as well so that's where for me the activation occurs when there's this um, I guess conversation that occurs from the light falling on the lines that I've extended into that space and the light that falls is at a different angle to the parallel lines on the ground? 
Yeah, that that's correct. I guess it's like the lines in the roof in getting back to the, the name of the work, 70 Degrees East, they are parallel to the Birrarung River, which sort of makes physical a um, figurative shift in that space of the north-south-east-west grid back to the landscape. So it's considering the land uh, a different perspective from that Eurocentric dominant north-south-east-west look look of space. And as I was led to believe, cemeteries are often north-south-east-west because you'd be buried facing east for the second coming of Christ, which New Day Rising as another part of the title is sort of referring to in some way. The patterns formed on the ground plane with the yellow paint and there is one blue line of paint which is um, signifying the, the river creates parallelograms predominantly in the form of diamonds which just in, in terms of further acknowledgement of the space prior to European arrival it recreates a motif that I have observed that's common throughout without you know tying it to a locality too too strictly but Southeast Australian First Nations design and, and motifs which brings me I guess to the second way that that work is activated and it's activated through um, the body as audience in entering that space and to view the ground plane as reflected by the mirror that the negative space between the mirrors in the roof disallows the viewing of the entire north-south lines on the ground and therefore with their angle of 70 degrees east creating the parallelogram yet again which you know changes as as the bodies move through that space much like the um, less arbitrary in comparison movement of the sun across the earth there You're on the unpodcast, unprojects.org.au. You had a work in an exhibition at ACA. Uh, the exhibition was called Sovereignty, and you did a work, I can't remember what year it was, 2014, was it? 2014-2017. It's called The Biggest Aboriginal Artwork in Melbourne Metro. That's right, yeah. So you took that from urban space as well. I mean, you can you tell us a bit about how, how you first made that work and then how you think it changed moving from that public space, very public space, to a gallery. Yeah. Which is still a public space, but not as public as a street. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, the, the conception of the work, without speaking for everyone, like other works, begins with an idea. It might sort of begin with an exchange that occurs. And as a physical object in both the, the gallery space and its original position in Paisley Street, Footscray, the sign that I I came across in 2014 was essentially a remnant of part of that space's commercial usage, which has changed over the years from a Dimmies and Forges store through to an IGA supermarket. So it was a remnant of an IGA supermarket, given that the lettering that I encountered said the biggest in Melbourne Metro, so there was a blank where pretty sure it used to say IGA because it was a pretty fancy IGA. I was a bit upset when it when it left. If anything, you know, it's not a Coles or a Woolworths. But I thought it was um, 
interesting in that it was commercial or catalyst sort of uh, residue that is like so common space is sort of in, inhabited and then just abandoned so there's like this visual detritus ar around us and this one in particular was um, maybe quite sort of clean or formal in having a white background and and four edges so it had it already had a frame of sorts and um, it was the negative space that I thought I would get involved with in, in terms of a, a wider conversation with that space. Are you talking about um, foot spray at the moment or are you talking just the space immediately in it or the space of Melbourne or? I think um, as a phenomena it's it's everywhere but Footscray is a good example of the uh, a, a lax where due to different factors including the local council not being too concerned with how the space looks that the detritus of commercial activity and, and otherwise as well you know activity and marks made by non-commercial interests i.e. essentially graffiti. people yeah yeah, yeah. And, and, and graffiti or or just you know the marks we make by moving moving through the space whether on foot or maybe in a vehicle I guess but um, it sort of maybe as an artist provided me an opportunity so I was already interested in the space which is imbued with an otherwise sort of unique characteristic that it's 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 flux is much more sort of visible than somewhere else where they might spend thousands of dollars to get a team in and redo a shop front overnight and it's a completely aesthetically and otherwise new sort of space to encounter whereas that flux almost a bit of a, a gray area as to what one might do in that space because it's almost like that you know the broken window phenomenon where it's like well if different various visual cues suggest that authority is less present here that my ability to interact with the space in a destructive or or otherwise sort of way increases that came partly into i guess yeah it was one of the, the comp compulsions to become embedded as an artist into that space through adding text there physically going there and in some ways taking on the the guise of those who make the, the more formal changes to those spaces by wearing high vis vest and putting up witches hats. Which is what you did, right? That's right, yeah. Early on a Sunday morning. But I find it interesting mm. as well with that work that you put it on at a time when there was barely any graffiti on it and now now just I mean, just when it was seen at ACA, there was a bunch of graffiti on there. How do you think that interacts as well? Like bringing it's quite, it was kind of a li living object. Yeah. In Footscray when it was the institute. That's right. And then you take it into the gallery space. Mm. How do you think it reflected the actual, I mean, how do you think the message of the work changed or? Yeah, to consider the, the message of the work. It, yeah, even to think about standing up to capitalism, that idea as we expressed before. I guess, you know, I stood up to capitalism in that I wasn't going to let that space totally dictate how I interact with that space. So my action, I guess guerrilla action was otherwise some sort of form of dissent. So I guess for the, the work in its physicality um, to post my formal edition of text there to remain in situ for two years to acquire more and I guess similar expressions of dissent 
with regards to um, making a mark on public space. Yeah, that's right. I guess for the most part, it was done with um, spray paint or permanent markers. But there is some residue of like a, like a like party foam, party string with the, you'd spray with the aerosol, and even maybe a smash fascism A4. Yeah, more um, obvious in its sort of political positioning uh, and, yeah, remnants for some other A4, but it was taped with masking tape. And then there's the dust and, and dirt. But it was quite a, um, a bit of a, maybe a puzzle for me to think about why was it so clean and pristine yet abandoned when I happened to come across it. And I guess I solved the puzzle by looking at the archive that Google Maps and, or Google Street View is becoming that I discovered you can look at the, the different uh, points in time that the, the Google cam has passed through. And I went back and there was a recording of that sign without IGA, without my text, but with graffiti. So I happened to come across that when the graffiti was removed. So it, I guess it had just been cleaned. I think, I think there's maybe four iterations or four documentations of that space. The first one showing dimmies and forges, which was, even though I had you know, probably driven through Footscray in the past, and I've maybe lived there seven years now, but yeah, I had never inhabited that space when it was dimmies and forges. But I guess in, in some ways they, whoever they might be, and it's probably just a commercial entity, they still somewhat inhabit the spaces there, the, you know, their, their choice of the bricks that were used to build that building so that they're still present in some way. And there, to think about the idea of co-authorship, uh, co they're somewhat co-authors of the space and the narrative that's in that place now. And I assume it was uh, IGA who contracted a signage company to put up the sign that became the work that ended up in Acker. And actually that signage company's stick is still down on the bottom left. So that's almost like to think of um, a signature, the artist's signature in, with, within the tradition of painting, their, their signature's down there. And I guess, yeah, for, fortuitously, serendipitously, receiving some correspondence from the curators of Sovereignty, Max Delaney and Palabala, uh, about potentially being in the show and having some interest in the artwork as remediated as photograph. And prior to it being a photograph, it was, um, you know, a performance that I, I carried out and an artwork that I guess in some ways is sort of boundaryless by adding text that sort of, it could extend well beyond that space through the conversations that people were having that it might prompt in its, um, in its ambiguity. The, the sentence that was created. But um, by the time the conversation began with ACA, the building was, yeah, as it seem, seemingly always has has done since I've observed that space, was, yeah, in, in flux again, and that this um, independent supermarket was contracting itself down to one end, and the interior behind the sign was being gutted and being refurbished. And it was um, obvious to me that the... Um, that for the text on the wall, to put it that way, its days were numbered and it was going to be um, recontextualised into a skip, a bin, and, yeah, just join the rest of the commercial detritus 
in the ground somewhere. So yeah, I think that contributed to having some idea of the potential of retrieving in at least in terms of the idea of a support, the panelling that the text was on for recontextualisation as an object or installation within the gallery space. As it happened, the process once it began, once I spoke to one of the tradespeople about who would I speak to about taking that sign, it, it, it happened quite easily to then have this period of time before the um, inevitable opening of the exhibition where the public enters that space and re-engages with that work in, in that new context as to what, what does it mean to have it within that space itself. Budget pending, what, what's the, um, you know, the many ways in, in how I could choose as artists with subjective agency how that could be represented, how through my decisions what um, exchanges occur, what is presented to the audience in that space. So through some yeah, helpful conversations with Max, who through his experience, you know, considers these things and also as curator or curators, the other works in the space, the conversations that might occur through them and I guess contribute to an overall conversation to think of the exhibition as a whole with its audience that um, to keep it on the same uh, plane, so a vertical plane, and otherwise uh, quite simply presented in that way, that was come to. We were both in the same mind as to not have it presented in that more traditional respect or idea as to something placed on a wall. Mm -hmm. That in showing the rear of the sign, it really sort of um, brought out some narratives about its functionality as a you know, commercial object, but also as to as an object being in flux just through its um, repositioning in space. The rear of the sign provided me again, I guess, some further opportunity to engage with that object and in terms of using dye bond, which I use with the market work, and somewhat ironically, the dye bond, same colour as well, safety yellow, that now adorns the space in the sign's absence as a Commonwealth Bank. I added three panels of dye bond to the back in, in considering the grid, because it comes to um, consist of six panels. The panels without dye bond showing the remains of what would have been liquid nails, in a repetitive sort of dot formation, which ties into, I guess, stereotype, stereotypes of Aboriginal art. And I guess just in underpinning it all and thinking about neon as a material that in my understanding, well, like neon's a gas, and we otherwise commonly think of neon as how we see it in a commercial slash public space on the street as advertising predominantly, or Increasingly, as artwork, that as a material, it came to mind as a potential addition to the work, just considering its tradition stemming originally from the commercial capitalist space, where, much like other materials that we might have access to as artists, it, it was recontextualized as yet another symbol that we put out in the exchange of ideas. And in being a I guess a simple white line and in choosing the, the white at 56,000 Kelvin, which is 
the colour temperature of daylight. Just acknowledging that unchanging pre-European history of that space and and the landscape in being a horizontal line itself. You're listening to the Unpodcast. You just mentioned those dots that often get associated with Indigenous art. I wanted to ask you about this Aboriginal art website that I found. AboriginalArtWebsite.com? Yeah. Yeah, so that was, I guess, yeah, I consider it as a container for different explorations I did as part of my practice-led honours year. You did a performance as part of Pioneer Lab and as part of Sovereignty that talked about the commodification of Aboriginal art. Yeah, they, um, both, both those performances yeah, tied into that. And, yeah, more explicitly at the ACA Artist Talk, the uh, performance event at the market was more about, um, yeah, making physical through gesture and objects and, in this instance, four bodies and four lengths of rope, the mechanics of, of the work. And I guess it's sort of duality between the Indigenous and, and, and other and otherwise, to put it very simply, perspectives on, on that place. But considering like an Aboriginal presence at that market, besides the bodies that are probably still interred there, who were likely peoples brought from from elsewhere, which was the case um, back in its original so-called settlement, that it is sort of um, unfortunate that to consider the international tourists that come here and have some romantic notion of Australia's first peoples and... It is capitalism, so people just capitalise on, on that and, yeah, have, I guess, a range of objects and or souvenirs, including T-shirts and clothing that people can buy that depict, I guess, the most, yeah, common sort of representations of Aboriginal Australians as blackfellas with spears, dot paintings and design and, and motifs connecting to a pre European arrival so therefore in a way maybe the romanticized savage and in some way denying the contemporary experience of living within a colonized society. I remember you saying at the start of this interview you were talking about how capitalism kind of makes everything I mean with indigenous in reference to, to Aboriginal art he puts it in a box and doesn't acknowledge the different presences within indigenous culture within Australia. Mm-hmm. That kind of paraphernalia makes it one thing as well. It doesn't acknowledge any symbolism that differs from any other country. It'll be a less viable proposition to to try and encompass such... um, It wouldn't fit fit under capitalism. No, it's, yeah, it sort of goes against their model. And interestingly, there was like an Aboriginal-owned store there up until a time just prior to the Biennial Lab and um, that... Yeah, it, it had, in comparison, a more widely sort of representative and authentic sort of expression and voice in that space, but um, still was sort of part of a capitalist model. But it was a business. It's there to make money. Um, so, you know, it wouldn't be interested in, in having artworks that would be less saleable. And, yeah, they decided to move on. But... Um, Maybe, yeah, you know, my work, whilst it's quite a sort of physical um, presence of that, well, I guess my own expression of my experience of culture and considerations of, of that space, it's, um, 
also ephemeral and yeah well it won't be there in a couple of months I'm told which was also always always the understanding and much like you know the shed which acts, acts as its support won't be there either I guess as part of what could happen in the redevelopment of that space as we know it as a market. Just going back now, mm -hmm. uh, you moved from your photographic practice because you did undergraduate studies in mostly photography. Yeah. And before that you studied social work. Mm -hmm. How do you think both social work and your photographic practice have um, given you the tools to make the kind of art that you do now? I, I think in, um, in you know my first sort of formal return to study, to study you know, community services and social work, that it is sort of acknowledging you know, the complexities of life and the variation of the experience that we have as individuals and, and groups and, yeah, the multiplicity of existing in this space that I guess we've been detailing in, in a way, the sort of complex, urban, commercially driven spaces. So I think in, in having some broad view of, of people's experiences as individuals, and when I worked formally in that, in that role, I was um, made more aware of these array of experiences that people have and, and challenges that people have through, and maybe as a, as a result in, in thinking of residue of, of these dominating systems, which you know, in, includes governments as well, and the decisions they make to, for example, reduce... Yeah, public space and, 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 and funds for um, people who, for example, might have disabilities and therefore less access to experiences that others might have access to in, in terms of, yeah, I think it's just about access, really. Like it's people's own decision to figure out or find or carry out things that make their life fulfilling. But it's about the access and the ability to do that. So I think just in terms of um, providing alternative narratives to the you know dominant paradigms that we're sort of cemented into, dropped into, it's you know looking at the, the mechanics behind all that, all those sort of relationships between power structures and and us and our experience, whilst we're consciously here living beings. Photography, yeah, I've just always remembered engaging with photography for a long time and, and to think about how it sort of connects to what I do now, that it is having some awareness of my positionality in space and what is around me. And the way that you treat space mm. and the objects or people within it. Yeah, you know, you are through your subjective agency making decisions as to, for the most part, frame these places and framing moments in time. Also through that presentation of that photograph, and I won't get into the, um, you know, analog digital sort of yeah. world, but, you know, that's, it's, that's another conversation, but um, how, how that is um, entered into yet another sort of layer of the visual topography of the world that we inhabit. They can't going to go there into the digital that is... Uh, ever-changing and ever-sort-of-flowing stream of uh, representation. And, you know, arguably these days it's representation of, of the self. So the author is somewhat sort of privileged in um, these streams that 
of images that we're that we're partial to. That it's um, somewhat an extension of the self. What do you think that does for being in a physical space and experiencing an artwork like one of your installations? What do you think that digital image could do to like to a viewer? Mm. The idea of, um, I guess, experiencing an artwork through its um, do photographic documentation as opposed to um, its physical presence in, in the space, in the least brings that audience member into a 3D space that, um, you know, it's much less fixed, that exchange. I guess the photograph sort of frames the artwork in, in a particular way that um, almost has like a, a set sort of range of interpretations. That's when compared to, you know, the almost endless sorts of ways you could interpret or experience a work in its presence. Maybe it um, could be thought of as less democratic to the artwork itself, even removing the, the artist as author, that, you know, it's, it's some sort of thing, I guess, or object that in thinking of having its own voice, it, it doesn't really have that full um, opportunity. Yeah, full opportunity to express itself, sort of like simplified and summarised by the photograph. But I think photographs are, are often used, particularly with the documentation of artwork, is to, and particularly when the photograph and what is framed um, is maybe sort of directed by the artists who, who put that work into the world, is I think what happens is, well, in the least, I am catering to an audience that who, who can't physically encounter the work and have that physical exchange, but perhaps through this um, reduction of the potential for experience and exchange through physical interaction with the work, that I might try and distill what its message is, what its narrative is or, or story. And that could happen on all different levels, even just in... in trying to convey a sense of its materiality, that maybe that artwork for that particular artist it was more about, more based, more about the material. So maybe that's sort of privileged in terms of the remediation as photograph. Can you quickly tell me maybe what you're working on right now? Yeah, 2017, we're in autumn. Um, so I'm just currently finishing up a um, concept design for a, public artwork that I'm bidding for, which is uh, for the city of Yarritz's Stolen Generations marker. So it's physical um, imposition into the landscape is acknowledging firstly the Stolen Generations is a thing. Um, and that's part of my family's history as well, so it's quite a personal project. And um, that's been quite an experience in that, as opposed to the Biennial Lab project, this, this one, if successful, or for whoever, um, I guess, gets commissioned to, to make that, that's a much larger budget. So there's some irony that I'll be involved with a lot of the sort of bureaucratic sort of framework that I criticised, but such is the, is, you know, the, the, the pull of capitalism. Yeah. And, and, you know, as artists, we have to, um, engage 
with the things that we critique, even, you know, to think of the academic institution to make art, or it's because we're in there and then we sort of critique it. But, yeah, I'm, I'm, I won't be critiquing any landscaping businesses, I, I don't think so, directly as part of that work. And I'm finishing up an essay for um, a journal called Thesis 11, which is based on a work called Home Ground that came, came about in 2009, and much like the biggest Aboriginal artwork in Melbourne Metro, it's an iterative work, where upon exhibiting that in Manila, Philippines, early last year, after its showing at La Trobe University, both in Bendigo and Bandura, there was a mini-conference around that exhibition in, in Manila where much more learned individuals spoke about uh, Indigenous modernity. And um, so, yeah, my essay is in some way a further iteration of that that artworking that I talk about that and I guess its iterative qualities and how at its basis is some sort of expression of Indigenous modernity. And um, I'm part of a group show at Mars Gallery, somewhat curated by Domenico De Clario, called Weep or Weeping for Painting. So I'll be um, doing a painting of some description for that. Thanks for listening to the first Unpodcast. The Unpodcast is a series of long-form interviews with artists that really dig into what they do and why they do it. You can find more info at unprojects.org.au. Music is by Andrew McClellan, and the artist interviewed in this first episode was Stephen Rull. You can find more about the artist at stephenrull.com.